So we go. Have a look at verse 27 of Daniel chapter 8. And just as we begin, I want to give something of a, um, of a slight health warning as we start. Daniel 8, verse 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days, and I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So the health warning is this is a brutal, hard passage that we're going to kind of wrestle with over the next half hour or so. Daniel gets his glimpse of the future. He sees history being played out. He sees the reality coming for the people of God. And then he has to have a lie down for a few days. So let me pray for us. Um, Then I will read the passage to us. And then we'll try and understand what it's about, what it meant and what it means for us. Let me pray for us first then. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us this evening, particularly as we read difficult things. As we hear of what will happen to your people. As we wrestle with something of your sovereignty over that. And as we think through the implications of this for us, but also for brothers and sisters around the world for whom this is more of a present day reality than it is for us at this point. Help it please not just to be an exercise in comprehension or understanding, but as we see what you're like, as we hear your word, Might we hear your voice and be shaped and changed and moulded by that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had been standing beside the canal, I had seen standing beside the canal, and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east, and towards the beautiful land... It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It 
He set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. And his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. And truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be consecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. (coughs) The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days, and I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Well, we've said before at Maudlam Road that one of the things we need to wrestle with this week, as we think through passages like Daniel 8, is that our experience as Christians, um, here and now, are basically pretty mild compared to brothers and sisters elsewhere around the world. I'm thinking places like North Korea, or like Sudan, or pretty much anywhere where there's a strict um, Islamic rule, Iran, Afghanistan, under the Taliban, north of Nigeria, Indonesia, Malaysia. Today, now, there are brothers and sisters around the world who are gathering together, but doing so with huge courage, because they are fearing for their lives. And that's not an exaggeration. You can look on various websites, Barnabas Fund, for example, different agencies as well, who will do similar things. But you get something of the reality of life for Christians, for our brothers and sisters, um, the world over. And Daniel 8 addresses their world. 
Daniel 8 speaks of the suffering of the people of God simply for being the people of God. The suffering of God's people at the hands of rulers who, who hate and who despise their God. But Daniel 8 does speak to Christians like that. And it says, your suffering will not last forever. It won't be like this forever. But sometimes it will be like this for now. God has not lost control. Evil kings will not rule forever. And so it says to people in that context, it says to brothers and sisters around the world now, keep going, it is worth it, this is not all there is. God is still in charge. Keep going. So what we'll do is we try and get to grips with, I suspect, a relatively unfamiliar passage for most, most of us, is do an initial kind of fly over the top and I'll attempt to sort of retell some of what's going on, um, verse 1 to 14 or so, and then think from our perspective looking back how it sort of panned out. We're told pretty explicitly what it means and what's going to happen, and you can see some of that from this perspective, from this side. Um, it fills in some of the details and the names of the people involved. But first of all, let's just fly over, first of all. And it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, we saw this last week as well, but actually, just to begin, it, Daniel, as we've seen, is not strictly chronological, the way it works things through. Um, so have a look at verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. So where is he and when is he? Well, where is he? Susa is not Babylon. Susa is actually in Persia. But remember, Belshazzar was a Babylonian king, which means this dream happened before Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, before Daniel 5, writing on the wall. But already God is signalling to Daniel that action is moving on from Babylon to Persia. Okay, so it sits somewhere before Daniel 5. But you get glimpses, Daniel's getting glimpses that Babylon will not last forever. The Persians are coming. And I take it it is something of the outworking of the dreams we've already seen in Daniel chapter 2. Remember the statue? And in chapter 7, the beastly kings from last time. This first great kingdom is declining. The next one is about to begin. So that's something of where we fit into the book. Which may have been an encouragement for the people of God at that point, maybe. Babylon, the great horror, the archetypal anti-God city, destroyer of Jerusalem, bringer of wrath on the people of God. Here is Babylon, but Babylon doesn't last forever, we see. Daniel looks ahead to a time when Babylon isn't at the centre anymore, it's Persia. And as we've seen in previous um, visions and dreams, if you've been around, you get these beastly kings being portrayed. So... Verse 3, you've got this ram with two long, kind of asymmetric horns, standing beside the canal. Verse 4, this ram charges towards the west, the north and the south. No animal could stand against him. He did as he pleased, he became great. And then this ram is destroyed by a goat. He's got kind of a prominent horn between his eyes, coming from the west. And verse 8, the goat becomes great. Um, but at the height of his power, this horn between his eyes is broken off. And in his place, you get four horns growing in the place of the one horn. Right, what's that? Well, obviously, 
Um, so you've got a ram with two weird horns to work out, and then you've got a goat with one horn that then loses a horn and has four horns. Um, the, the recording will miss my acting out of horns, but that's okay. You guys are privileged. Um, so Daniel has just witnessed essentially two great empires rising and falling before his eyes. Both strong, fierce, unstoppable, devastating. Both come to an end. Both fit in this paradigm we've seen in the last few weeks of this sort of beastly rule. They, these are leaders who, are, who aren't humane. They don't rule in the likeness of God. They, they rule like brute beasts. They snatch power for themselves. They trample anything and anyone who gets in their way. But the dream doesn't end there. The vision's not over. Because you've got this, the peak of its power, this great horn of the goat, remember, with, in between the eyes, is snapped off and four sm- smaller ones take over. Have a look at verse 9. Things then get bad. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. It threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from them and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. It prospered in everything it did and the truth was thrown to the ground. And suddenly we're not just looking at sort of politics... We're not looking at the broad sweep of international politics. There's a new element. We're focusing in on the beautiful land. We're watching one king, one of these four that replaced the one, with the horrible venom towards Jerusalem, towards the people of God. It is politics, but it's not just politics, because suddenly this religious dimension, this element is coming in. This king is setting himself in the place of God, taking worship that belongs to God. And... And it seems that he wins. It's a nightmare. God's rule and authority is cast to the ground. He's trampled as if he were the ram in the vision. As if he were just another king. He is trampled, defeated it seems, conquered. Where is God? Why can he not protect his people at this point? How can he allow his sacrifices now to be given over to a man it seems? And it feels like a nightmare. But Daniel wakes up, and it wasn't just a nightmare, it's real. What does it mean? Well, verse 19, we get it explicitly. Or at least that's where it begins. I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So... Often, in the apocalyptic, you get quite general explanation of what's going on, what it might mean. But we know for sure what this means, because we're told. So the ram is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. The goat is Greece. The ram has two horns, presumably because they're two kingdoms joined together into one empire. The goat has one prominent horn. Presumably that's Alexander the Great, history will tell us. He led Greece's rise. He, he conquered the world before he turned 30. But then this horn is cut off. Again, from this side, presumably that is because he died aged about 32. Um, possibly the history books will tell us from malaria or typhoid or some other illness. 
his empire is then divided up into four different kingdoms. Uh, each of the four little horns. We know some of that for sure, because it tells us in the passage. We know some of that from history, so we can make educated, <coughs> helpful guesses. Um, but then as we said, the strikingly, the focus of the dream is not so much about politics, but it zooms right in on this little horn that follows. This one from the, um, the Greek Empire. Verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many. And then he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Who is this little horn? That's the big question. And there's some disagreement, but history does record a king for us who comes from one of the kingdoms after Alexander the Great. And he seems to fit the description pretty well. Now, there is a bit of back and forth on this and some disagreement. Um, But I think it's pretty convincing. Um, If you know your history, he was a leader of the Seleucid Empire. And he... He even calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which for some of you may be a familiar name. Um, it's a name he gives himself, which means God manifest. So here he is putting himself in the place of God, and he ruled over the region, including the area of Israel. Um, it's a slight side note, but interestingly, he, he planned to go and attack Egypt, but the Romans warned him off Egypt. And so he takes out his rage, his humiliation over the people of God, over the Jews in Judea. And he deliberately reversed the law of God, we read. He, he, he made a law that said circumcision was illegal. He, he made the Jews sacrifice pigs. He, he made a law that meant they had to work on the Sabbath. And he was brutal as he enforced those laws. He infamously sent inspectors around Judea to inspect newborn baby boys, and if they had been circumcised, then they would be killed. And he slaughtered Jews, and he sent Jews into slavery, and he was a brutal and a horrible king. In fact, if you read the history, I quite like this. Um, Some of the Jews deliberately mispronounced his name. So it's supposed to be Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. They used to um, mispronounce it as Antiochus Epimemes, which means madman. Which is pretty fair. It was explicitly religiously motivated. He wanted to break the Jewish people and so he went for their very heart. He went to Jerusalem, he went to the temple and he desecrated it. He set up an altar to Zeus in their temple and he sacrificed pigs in their temple. And again history tells us he was there for about three years. Which is about 2,300 evenings and mornings if you do the maths. And yet what's shocking seems to be that the people of God at this point, of course they weren't perfect, but if you look back, they fought for the honour of God. They seemed to resist in every way they could. They seemed to keep worshipping their God. They seemed to keep circumcising their boys. They gave their lives for God, and yet Antiochus prevailed. 
He prospered in all he did, the passage said, and truth was thrown to the ground. And do you see why Daniel was appalled? Do you see why he needed days off work to deal with this? It's the innocent who suffer. And it's the guilty who prosper. And we say, how can this be? And Daniel doesn't tell us. God didn't reveal to him why it happens. God doesn't explain or defend himself. He just says, here's how it will be. Now, if you want to deal with that kind of a question, then go have a look in some of the Psalms. The writers will begin to wrestle with with some of that question. Why do the innocent suffer and the guilty prosper? And sometimes you get a perspective that helps. And sometimes it's just left. And we don't so much. Sometimes we're just told to trust and to cling on. And yet all that feels quite a distance from us, doesn't it? Really, we live relatively safe, luxurious lives. It's pretty comfortable. It's pretty hard to grasp what it would be like to be a believer under that kind of rule. For where Daniel chapter 8 is our present reality. What would it be like to live then? It just feels a long way away from us. Of course, we said before, we're the odd ones out. If you look around the world, if you look back at church history, we live in a very unusual time, a time of comfort and a time of um, relative ease. Because Antiochus, if that's who it was, this little horn is a specific king in a specific place at a specific time. And yet he represents a type and there have been and there are rulers who have similar agendas, who rage against God, who try to destroy faith in him, who want to crush the people of God by going for their very heart. So it's a reality for brothers and sisters. It might be a reality for us in decades to come. But what do we do with this? What's Daniel chapter 8 about for us? Of course, we can say this is real for brothers and sisters and it should cause us to pray and to care and to love and to send and to go. But what about us at this point here? What's going on? I think the thing to take away, I think the thing that God tells Daniel to, to write it down for And then for us to cling on to as well is that even in the midst of the mess and the mayhem, God still rules. Even when we've got all kinds of questions, he still rules. So do you see in Daniel, in part, you need to know this because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so as he has this vision, as he writes it down, so the people of God were not taken by surprise when it happened. They knew it would be limited in scope. They knew there'd be an end date. They knew it was coming. So in part, that's what it's for. That's there, that God is sovereign. He still rules, even in the midst of the mess and the mayhem. But also I take it this, and get this, 
Daniel needed to hear this because in his day and his age, the great hope for Israel was that they would be returned to the land again. Do you remember they were in exile and they were looking for a return back to their land, the land that God had promised them. And yet I take it this dream will have recalibrated or begun to recalibrate their expectations for their return back into the land. Returning to Jerusalem seemed like the promise they were after. This was the thing to end all their ills. This was the exile done with and they're back home again. This is what they wanted. And yet you know as the pages of scripture begin to turn that it falls short of expectations. If you were here with Nehemiah last, last year, earlier this year. We saw Cyrus sending the exiles home and only a fracture of them went back. And we saw the old men in tears because they looked at the temple and saw what it was like. Their glory doesn't return to the temple. There were no return to the kingship. There were no days of blessing and influence, wealth, power. And so chapters like this begin to recalibrate future expectations for the people of God. These things being less tied in with a particular land, a particular place, a particular set of events. Why did things fall so short of their expectations? Well, because those promises then under the old covenant weren't going to find their fulfilment in a physical people, in a physical place of Palestine. Those promises are going to have to await for a new king, a king of kings, waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. Suddenly the scope gets so much bigger. It's relevant for us as well because... As we've said, Antiochus, or whoever it was, is a type of other beastly kings. Kings now, leaders and rulers now, who take power, who create havoc, who hate the people of God, who make us ask those questions. But kings for the future as well, I take it. Kings who will continue to persecute the people of God. So sometimes we need to remember this is not all there is. Suffering is real. Enemies of God still exist. But one day all this will be dealt with. Because you get the terror of Daniel chapter 8. And it is terrible. It's a nightmare chapter. But there is one redeeming feature. And that is throughout this passage there seems to be glimpses of hope. What are they? The first one is that God gives this vision. That has to be a bit of hope, because God can reveal the future because he holds the future in his hands. He's not surprised by what goes on. Even in the midst of the deep darkness, there are glimpses of light. There are stars that shine. Babylon had boasted it would rule forever, but this vision shows they were passing away. The Medes and the Persians would overthrow Babylon, but they too would pass away. Then indestructible Greece would come. And the great ruler of Greece, Alexander the Great, well, he would pass away too. No army could stop him, but he was still mortal. And so this stern king, his time is limited. He opposes God. He sets up the abomination in the temple. He does all that stuff, but he's on a leash and he's just there for 2,300 evenings and mornings, which is about three years, which seemed to be about the length of time he sacrificed on his altar in Jerusalem. Um, or it could be about six years, which is 2,300 days. It depends how you count it. Commentators differ. Whatever the answer, his reign is limited. 
His days are numbered before they begin. God is still sovereign. He is still good. He is still in charge. Even to the extent that verse 24 is there. The king becomes powerful but not by his own power. It's not explicit but it seems to be saying that he is on a leash. That God is sovereign over even this king. He is in charge over even this king. It doesn't discount this guy's sin and horror. But he is on a leash. God is sovereign. And in verse 25, he will be destroyed not by human power, but by whose hand? By God's hand. He is finally in charge. And so our comfort when we face the fiery trial, when... When it comes, when it comes with brothers and sisters around the world, when we think, God, God, are you really there? God, do you really care? The comfort is God is still sovereign. This too even is part of God's plan. How? How? Daniel doesn't tell us. But I think it is. How much better though this be part of God's plan. Coming to an end one day. Than to not be part of God's plan. And beyond his control. And you know God's people did stand firm. And if they were tempted to give in. And they knew the evil kings would come and go. But God was still on his throne. And they held on to that. Before we finish, I want to take us to Romans 8. There is something of a mystery in the Bible about the reality of suffering. About the place of suffering for the people of God. How can this be God's plan? How can this suffering be a part of his his sovereign purposes? Well, Romans 8 helps a bit because it reminds us that the unjust suffering of God's people doesn't separate us from his love. So in Romans 8, you see the little bit um, there with the the reference to Psalm 44. Even when God's people are living like sheep on their way to the slaughterhouse, even then, Psalm 44, God's people crying out to him for rescue and deliverance. Even then in Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. If we're going through the mill, cling on to those truths. Nothing can separate you from his love. How can Paul speak of a God of love like that? While suffering, I take it because he knows the lamb who was slaughtered. He was slaughtered alongside his people, for his people. Because he knows Jesus, who knows what it is to suffer. And so in Christ, Paul knows what the future holds. He is confident. Which means he says... I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glories to come. 
these light and momentary sufferings are achieving for us a weight of glory. There is no comparison. These present sufferings are real and they are horrible and they hurt, but they will come to an end. They will be replaced by a future glory, says Paul. A glory that far, far, far outweighs them. A glory that will never end. A glory that will mean we look back at them and and they weren't quite what they were. God is still in charge. Keep clinging to him. And as you cling to him, look to the one who knows what it is to suffer. Look to his son. Look to his son and know that he loves you and he is for you. Let's pray. (coughs) Father in heaven, we confess we find these passages hard. We find them hard because they deal with difficult things we find them hard because we don't like to think of suffering and pain we find them hard because they leave us with questions and because you call us just to trust you in them thank you that you are not taken by surprise when it comes to the future even even with kings like in this passage here We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are good. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know what it means to suffer. You know what it means to be the lamb who was slain, who was slaughtered for his people. And that it is through your being slaughtered for your people That we can look ahead to a time of peace, of blessing, of of glory. We can look ahead to a time when we will see that these light and momentary sufferings weren't quite what we thought they were. Not worth comparing with the glories to come. And say, Lord, when we go through hardships, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. As we think of brothers and sisters around the world, as we think of persecuted Christians today even, who are meeting in secret with such courage, might they know that truth. With Paul, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glories to come. Keep there and keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. In your son's name. Amen.